whatever you are doing in life from a career perspective, try and carve out a way to align yourself with something you love. And um, it's not always apparent and obvious and easy, but I just, I really firmly believe that life's too short to spend 40 to 70 hours of your week doing something that you're not passionate about and that you don't love. So to begin with, for the people who don't know who you are, or what you do, do you mind just giving us a brief introduction? Yeah. Um, so my name's Lorraine Copes. I am a social entrepreneur within the hospitality industry. And for the past 20 years, I have worked as an exec on the board of a number of key brands. So my specialism is broadly hospitality, food and drink. And also the founder of Be Inclusive Hospitality as well. Yes. Also the founder of Be Inclusive Hospitality. How could I forget? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So before we get into, you know, we usually like to do things chronologically and go through the upbringing, etc. Before we get into there, I've got a one question for you. What's your why behind everything that you do? Mm, I love that. Um, my why is um, being able to support in any which way that I can, people that face adversity to move forwards and upwards. And that why um, is something that has always been present, it's been ever present, but it's shown up when I have been a leader working in businesses or with my younger brother and his friends. And um, in 2018, I, I quit one of my jobs decided to take some time off work and completed the coaching diploma and it was upon completing that diploma that I, I feel as though I got to know myself in a way I didn't before and I was really clear that my why wasn't something that I wanted to spend the minority of my time doing and that it needed to be the majority which is kind of the sort of pathway towards being inclusive hospitality but yeah it's definitely helping people to move forwards and upwards that face adversity and often that look like me that's it perfect all right let's take it back here uh to start off with could you paint a picture as to what your childhood looked like and you know where you grew up and just what the environment was like for you sure um so you can probably tell from my accent i'm from birmingham and um i grew up in a a a jamaican household so both of my parents are jamaican um when i stepped foot into my house it was jamaica from the music played from the kind of culture, the values, the food. And it was, um, it, it was good times. I look back really fondly of my kind of um, childhood memories. Um, my mum and my dad both worked um, at, at the same time whilst myself and my uh, two brothers were at school. So it was a lot of juggling from a family perspective. So one would work days, one would work nights. Um, and my parents worked really hard and they very much instilled in me and my brothers. And it's, it's you know, typical of kind of immigrants that come to the UK, that education is key. And they really selflessly worked hard to ensure that we had the opportunity to all go to university and never really have to worry about a great deal financially. Um, and so... My childhood was good. Birmingham is a really multicultural city. Um, 
even in terms of me thinking about being a black woman or black child in this world, they are not thoughts that I had on a regular basis as a young person because the schools I went to in Birmingham were really mixed in terms of uh, ethnicity and race. And so it was, yeah, it was good. I mean, I could talk all day about my childhood, so I don't know if there's a specific point or area that you're keen to hear more about, maybe. First of all, it's just good to sort of understand what your childhood was like. And actually, tying it back to when you talk about your why and wanting to help people that are from, you know, underrepresented backgrounds and helping them to elevate, etc. cetera. Uh, do you feel that your upbringing has played a point, played a part into why that is your way right now definitely and let me tell you this so you know I went to school in a really you know multicultural um, environment and what I remember observing when I look back in hindsight is that I at school was in the top set but I was by no means the top of the class and there were definitely black boys in particular that I remember in the class that were way ahead of me in terms of intellect or natural ability, I suppose, from a, a you know school perspective and in, in achieving. And I look now back at some of my peers from junior school and secondary school that I personally believe were far more intelligent than I were. And they haven't done that great. And don't get me wrong, um, I know it's quite subjective in terms of what doing really well looks like but actually the better way to put it is I don't believe they really realize their potential based on their ability or intellect and I've seen that time and time again throughout my life where there are black people or people of color that are super intelligent and um, very capable and they don't realize their potential for a number of reasons and I, I compare and contrast to, to, you know, my family and my personal experience. And I was never top of the class. I'm, I'm, and I've always said I'm like a, a C student. I was a C student at school, apart from in media studies where, you know, I really thrived in that area and got an A. But I had a really supportive family. There was no pressure ever for me to go out and get a job. Um, and I think sometimes having a really supportive family and having both of my parents there as well, it can sometimes set you on a pathway that some of us don't have the privilege of, of being able to kind of pursue similar paths um, stress-free. And so definitely witnessing that, and I often think about that um, because you layer on top of that. I remember being at school and I look back in hindsight, so many of the teachers were racist, like anything the black kids done became a problem so like you know the guys had lines in their hair that was a problem we started wearing like diamond socks this is a very long time ago that was a problem but white kids could dye their hair red and green and that was never a problem and the teachers also used to encourage the black children in particular into sports when actually a lot of the black kids in my school were as academic academically capable as the white kids so I think I think it's multi-layered in terms of kind of where uh, different people's lives have ended up or their careers have ended up. But I think something that is really important for me is recognising that there are many, um, many of us out here who have big aspirations 
and don't necessarily have an aunt or an uncle who is a lawyer or uh, a managing director or that network that is immediately accessible to us. And so creating space for that to happen is also, you know, hugely important. And the other thing I will say when I think back, all of the things that I'm doing now in terms of being inclusive hospitality and all the things I'm telling you now, this isn't an idea that was born like a year or two years ago. These were thoughts that I was having 10 years ago. I just wasn't clear on the how. But I wrote them down in my notes on my phone. Some of them are still there, actually. I was really clear on the what. I didn't know the how. And then um, I made a plan. That's really interesting. We talk about being inclusive, not being, not necessarily being like a new idea. Because I feel like that's the same with 1,000 Voices. Like That's an idea I had a long time ago. It's not new. It's not like I thought about it and done it straight away. I had that idea time, years ago. It's not like months. I'm talking years back I had the idea. And for me, I was putting it. I was putting it off for a long time. Like I was coming up with every excuse in the book and well, I guess they're valid excuses, but I feel like it, when I got later on, actually when I actually started it, I found out or came to realization that it built, boiled down to a fear of failure, which I didn't necessarily know at the time back then. But I was saying to myself, oh yeah, I haven't got enough money for studio. Okay, oh, now COVID's hit. Oh no, now this, no that, blah, blah, blah. And uh, you know, every kind of excuse, so I need a perfect kind of space. I wanted everything to be perfect before I started. Uh, but I think a lot of the beauty in it is that just starting however you are and then letting people see the journey and see things get better and see things improve. Like when I look back to some of the first interviews, I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Like I see, I can see a lot of things that I would do differently or feel like I'll do better now, but it's all part of the journey. Um, definitely. But yeah, thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing that. That was really cool. Um, on your upbringing, are there any key experiences or key key periods during your, any time in your upbringing that you feel have shaped who you are today? Hmm. It's an interesting question. It's so funny, actually, because I often ask my parents, um, if the person I am today, if they saw like, if they saw my personality or signs of who I am very early on and when, and my parents have actually both been pretty useless in telling me anything. They were like, oh yeah, you're just a normal girl. No, no, I know I was a normal girl, but I say whatever normal is, but, but what did you see in me at what point? And were you know, anyway, they couldn't tell me anything for me personally, in terms of what shaped me, th there was nothing really significant that happened during my childhood. Um, but there were a series of small events, I think, that shaped who I am. So one being, in terms of personality, I'm the middle child, got two brothers, elder brother, younger brother. And um, as a result of that, I've got quite a, a, a quick tongue um, because when you grow up with brothers um, and the way boys can be, they're always ready for battle. And so I've always been ready for battle on the basis of that. And that's helped me in business, actually. <laughs> Because my brothers uh, loved them dearly, but you know, when you're a child, they were a nightmare. <laughs> That's the immediate thing that comes to mind in terms of shaping me. I think something else that shaped me actually was the environment and the city that I grew up within. And you know, I've lived in London for 10 years now, and I go home on a regular basis because I'm really close to my brother and my parents. But actually, the city of Birmingham shaped who I am in terms of the type of person I am. Because if you've been to Birmingham, or anyone that has been to Birmingham will tell you that Brummies are really friendly and warm people. 
and um, I hold on to that dearly today. Um, not to say that anyone else from anywhere else in the city isn't nice, but there, there is a distinct difference between Brummies, how, how the, the approach, the attitudes, and that is something that also sits with me really closely. Um, and it's something I cherish and I love about um, my city, actually, as well. That's great. All right. Thanks for that. So moving into your professional career, it's quite interesting. You've gone into hospitality and you've grown up in your, your strong Jamaican household, probably loads of Jamaican food. Uh, and then now you've gone into the hospitality industry as well. Uh, why? How did you end up in hospitality? Did you know you wanted to go into that or was it something you just sort of fell into? Definitely not. So basically at university, I uh, studied a degree in logistics. So logistics as a degree was made up of anything from transport management to business, um, purchasing, um, finance. And um, I applied for a job as a forecast and planning analyst out of university and got the job with a pub company called The Spirit Group, which is now Green King. And it was at that point in life I realised that I could eat for free and not be a chef stood in a kitchen. I had no desire to be a chef, by the way. Um, and but, but I realised I could work really closely with food and drink in a way that is probably unconventional. And so I did that job for a year. The business disbanded. I worked really closely with buyers and liked the look and feel of that role, which was even closer to the product. So becoming a technical expert in the products in order to buy them competitively and commercially for an organisation... And then when that business disbanded, I applied or wrote to the MD, managing director of a contract caterer and managed to get a job there. They created a job for me as a buyer. And from then onwards, I've been able to kind of progress my career um, within the hospitality industry. And my last roles were on the exec boards for the Gordon Ramsay Group, Corbin and King and Shake Shack. And so it was definitely not a conscious decision to move into hospitality but it definitely was a conscious decision to stay in hospitality because I have been really fortunate um, doing the role that I have to buy all the things that I love personally. So to become a champagne expert and really understand that product, to become a wine, food, glassware, energy, IT. If you think about everything within a restaurant um, setting, my department and I would be responsible for sourcing and if you are big into champagne and you're buying champagne and you're traveling to champagne regularly, then it's a dream. And so I did that obviously for 20 years and loved it. And, um, but, but worked really hard um, and was able to move into, you know, amazing jobs with phenomenal brands that helped shape my career and experience, which has supported me in, in this be inclusive hospitality journey in a big way champagne on tap that sounds like my kind of role so when people think oh even me i'll just when you talk for everyone when i think of hospitality i just think of restaurants and chefs really i don't really think of anything else other than that and then you've told me you've worked in logistics and forecasting and planning analysts i didn't even I've never heard of that before in my life first time hearing about it um and obviously, just speaking of you, I'm assuming, well, obviously, there's going to be a range of different roles available within hospitality, not just front office in the restaurant, being a chef or anything like that. Can you talk about what kind of roles are available and also where the opportunities are for people that may want to go into hospitality? Yeah, I mean, if you think about hospitality as you would with any business, so 
absolutely there's the operation. So whether it's a hotel, it's a cafe, it's a restaurant, there are chefs, there are general managers, supervisors, kitchen porters, sommeliers, bartenders. But obviously with a lot of restaurants, especially restaurant groups, there's a back office function that supports their operation. So as you would with any business, there's a finance team, there's a marketing team, there's PR, there's procurement, there's supply chain. The list goes on and on. Now, whilst within the restaurant operation, hospitality is probably one of the poorly, one, one of the poor, um, definitely most poorly paid uh, sectors in um, the UK. In terms of earning potentials in head office, it's, it's, it's equivalent to any other industry, to be honest. Um, and whilst I am personally, and I've always been driven by enjoying what I do, I wouldn't have stayed in the industry if it couldn't have paid me, you know, uh, a relative salary to the, the work, the hours and the output that I was producing. And so the roles that I describe are never at the front of mind when people think of hospitality, but they're absolutely necessary for the businesses to function. And using my, my, specific function as an example, procurement and supply chain. If we think about what has happened over the past two years with the pandemic, and as consumers, we've all felt the personal brunt of supply chain disruption. So my local Sainsbury's has been out of stock of strawberries for the past two weeks, for instance. If in a restaurant environment, you do not have someone that is managing supplier relationships, that's negotiating prices, that's ensuring that you are crystal clear on where your products are sourced from and the due diligence there then there's exposure to your business and so procurement and supply chain specifically it's 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 a business imperative but sometimes it's a luxury dependent on the size of your business so people often think about buying they think about retail they think about your tesco's of this world but actually all the big hospitality organizations and some of the smes also have a procurement equ equivalent within their within their um, business because running a business is extremely difficult and you want to be able to control your costs where you can, right? So. That's great. All right, let's talk about Be Inclusive Hospitality. So first of all, for people who don't know what Be Inclusive is, could you give us like a brief overview of what, what it is? And also, you mentioned that you started it sometime after you first had, first had the idea. So... Um, the background on what Be Inclusive is and also why you started it at that point in time you started it as well. Sure. Yeah, sure. So Be Inclusive Hospitality is a, it's a social enterprise and it's a not-for-profit organisation with a mission to accelerate race equity within the hospitality industry. And we do that in one of three ways. The first and the why of the organisation is to support people of colour to move up within their careers or businesses and how we do that is through delivering workshops, through delivering mentorship, delivering scholarships, a free education, and also holding events. So we have our first award ceremony actually um, coming up. Um, the second pillar of the business is an equity, diversity and inclusion consultancy with a real focus on education. So we have a, a, a education and resource hub, which is made up of research and insights. And it's also made up of delivering a lot of workshops acting as an advisor, soundboard, consultant to hospitality businesses and food and drink brands. And then last but not least, we partner with businesses to advance change. So if a brand or an organisation has an idea that they want to execute and they need a delivery partner, soundboard, consultant, we act as that. 
So at this moment in time, we're working in partnership with Ben's Original, who are part of Mars Food, to deliver an initiative that specifically supports black chefs. We've worked with Verve Clico. We're currently working with Uber Eats, similarly supporting um, black-owned restaurants. So they have a £250,000 grant fund available. Um, we've worked with Taste of London. So we work with businesses broadly across the sector. Um, and so that is what we do. In terms of the timing, so it has long frustrated me as someone that is really proud about the rich Caribbean culture that I have uh, around Jamaican food, but also someone that is um, super connected to um, food across the African diaspora and seeing the real emergence of that over the, the past sort of five or six years and not seeing that represented within the industry or anywhere on television or in the media. And so where Be Inclusive Hospitality started a while ago was actually around visibility. Where are they? So we all know Ainsley Harriet exists, but we also know he's not the only black chef in the UK. So where are the rest? So Be Inclusive Hospitality, because I was working full time as a procurement director for a restaurant group and I was working as a life coach or business coach, it didn't leave a great deal of time to really build a business. And then the pandemic hit and we went obviously from being very busy to I was at home in my garden, um, mostly drinking wine actually on my laptop. And I used that time to really get really crystal clear on what the business plan is, what the mission is, what we want to achieve and how we're going to achieve it. Everyone being at home meant that we were able to grow the community really quickly and become visible but actually timing is everything because our website launched on the 1st of June and we know what happened in the month of June early June in terms of the murder of George Floyd and what that created is well you probably can remember people were desperately scratching around and searching for a business within their respective sector that represents race equity and when they looked they found us so timing and the launch of our business the launch of our website, the timing meant that we became really visible quickly. But what then proceeded thereafter is working, you know, really hard and at pace to deliver initiatives that make a difference, even when we were all at home during the pandemic. Mm, mm. And um, you mentioned it was part of the second pillar, I believe, where you spoke about there's the mentorship side of things. Could you speak about, uh, speak about, personally for yourself, how the what you feel the importance of mentorship is and how important it's been for yourself and your own professional and entrepreneurial career yeah 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 I think it's hugely important I think that when I look back at my career to date whilst I wouldn't have labeled them as a mentor there have been significant individuals who have often been my seniors that have guided and nurtured and advised and helped me to steer my career forward and they are all people that have taken the steps that I would have taken before me. Interestingly, none of them were black. However, I was still able to lean into advice offered, granted, that has helped me to move forward within my career. So I personally feel or believe that mentorship is hugely important, which is why we launched the Elevate Mentorship Scheme. And we've seen that as a result of launching our scheme. So for our first cohort, which was launched in 2021, 40% of the scheme were able to access either promotions or move up within their careers as a result of being on the scheme, one of which was offered a job by their mentor. And so 
I'm very numerous, commercially minded and measure absolutely everything. And I know from the Be Inclusive Hospitality Elevate Mentorship Scheme alone that we are now seeing results as a result of the, you know, the real positive impact that mentorship can have on people's lives and their careers as well. What I will add to that though is mentorship on its own is not going to advance change. It's one of the key and important pillars of advancing change from where we are here and now. Are you seeing a change in uh, the diversity in these hospitality organisations that you, you work with? Diversity isn't the problem within hospitality. And I say that because 17.83% of the industry identifies black, Asian or ethnic minority. And I know this because in our first year, we commissioned a report which was produced by the Resolution Foundation, which looked at what those numbers were. So there's over-representation of people of colour in the industry in a nutshell, but it's the positions that they occupy that has long been the problem, which is generally not in the boardroom and it's usually in the back of the kitchen, <laughs> unless they own the business. So um, has diversity changed? I don't think diversity is the issue. I think inclusion and equity is the issue within the hospitality industry. For the 20 years I've been in the industry, we've seen slow steps forward and we are moving in the right direction, but there's a lot of work to be done. I think until I'm in a position where I can look across my LinkedIn and I know a lot of people in the industry of all backgrounds and races, and I can name to you several managing directors, CEOs, business founders, until I can do that consistently, then it begs the question as to why the industry does not represent the society that we're in and what are those barriers for those who are not visible and not accessing um you know resource capital the question is why not because i, I believe there's an appetite for it for sure and what what do you feel the barriers are and how can we overcome those oh i mean uh, where do we start i think hospitality or i know hospitality is is a reflection of the society that we live within right uh, hospitality is not unique in the fact that for many organisations across the UK there's a lot of white people at the top and there's a lot of black and brown people at the lower levels of management the same issues apply and I also think that as a country I think we've or I'd like to think we've moved beyond the question as to the why and it's now what what do we do about that race you know inequality is real and it affects people and different groups in different ways, really importantly. How we overcome them, it's how long have you got really? I think um, the reason why my business is, is really set up to take a multi-pronged approach is because I believe that education of the leaders that are leading these businesses is absolutely essential. But I also believe in that in order to, to kind of um, level the playing field, that marginalised communities need to have additional access so that they can catch up. It, so I think that um, there's a number of things that need to be changed, that need to change. And, and so, yeah, I think my business and our business model pretty much reflects two of the core and key things that I think are essential to help move that, move that dial forward. All right, and let's talk success in hospitality. So people working at head office for large global organizations, I could probably assume it's going to be quite similar to other industries um, in terms of how to progress and progress up the ladder. But particularly for people who are setting out on their own, starting up their own businesses within the hospitality industry, what advice would you give for someone like that to, in order to succeed? 
I think, I mean, there's a number of things really. I think that um, having mentors and advisors is really important. So advisors and mentors from people that have already walked that path. I think it's hugely, hugely important because a lot of people from all backgrounds set up hospitality organisations with the passion and the love for food without really understanding the complexities that are required um, to run a successful restaurant and to be actually profitable. So having people in your corner that understand the sector and can advise on that is hugely important. The other thing that I would say, and I believe this whether you're an individual business, is, is tap into your network. Your network is your net worth. And um, whilst I reflect on my journey and I, I recognise I've worked really hard, um, my network has absolutely helped to accelerate the impact that we have been able to have and the reach that we've been able to have. And I think the same goes for any industry in any role. Your network can be hugely valuable to your success and your learning. And so I think those two things are really an essential part of the journey. But actually, I would also say this. Make sure you understand the market. Because especially in London, the hospitality industry is such a it's a busy industry with a lot of businesses. And if you do not really understand the sector and understand what your place might be within that sector, if you're going to carve out a space, then fantastic. But make sure you understand the sector as it is at the moment and what performance looks like to relative businesses, to where you either want to be based or the type of cuisine. All right, that's perfect. Yeah, understand the market, network, and essentially join the community, like like be inclusive. Um, can you talk about community building? What that's what that's been like, and um, advice for people that want to build a community as well. It's it's been amazing, actually. Um, it's been amazing, and I think when I reflect on on takeaways on how we've got to where we are here and now with a community of four hundred people, is it's making it really clear on what your values are and what you stand for. And when you do that, like a magnet, people come. Now, you know, and that's really me explaining it in an overly simplistic way. When I look back at this organisation, I mean, the voice and the tone of voice has been my voice and the views and the values have been my views and values. And I've been really explicitly clear on what they are and what we stand for and what we don't we have had a really clear kind of marketing strategy around being visible and around accessing the communities that we want to serve. And in doing that really effectively, our community find us and our community is made up of individuals and businesses. So a week doesn't pass where we have businesses getting in touch with us, looking at ways in which they can work with us to advance their aims. Similarly, a week doesn't pass where we have individuals reaching out saying, how can they either join the community, be an ambassador, be a mentor, etc. So I think being really um, unapologetic and really explicitly clear on what you stand for is a really important part of building any community. I like that. That's, that's really good. Actually, It's like that sort of sharing that. Um, it's like your communication in a sense and really directly communicating what you are and what you're about and not be wishy-washy or being on the fence and then people who resonate with that are going to get in contact and um, yeah get involved so that's sick and, and when I when I say that and I think about it it's just it's just effective marketing isn't it because if you think about any any brand or any product 
they get really crystal clear on who they want to talk to and they talk directly to them. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm a massive believer in that. I feel that if you speak to everybody, you're speaking to no one, really. But you've got to speak directly to people because people need to read your message and hear your voice and be like, oh, wow, wow, is she talking to me? Is he talking to me? Like, people need to see that, not like this general message that can be interpreted and be for anyone. It's not really going to, you know, target anyone's heartstrings or capture anyone really so um for sure definitely agree with that um on your journey so whether professionally whether in your entrepreneurial endeavors what's been a big challenge you've gone through and how have you overcome it i mean being black and being senior leader has been an ongoing (laughs) i say ongoing challenge it's been it's been an experience of often feeling like you are alone in a room. It's been an experience of sometimes feeling as though, or knowing that you are potentially fighting harder to get your bonus paid than your white male peers. You know, it's, when I think about my career, I describe it as I feel as though Whilst I turned up as me, I felt I was in a straitjacket and I no longer am. And if you think about, or if you picture, because I'm a really visual person, if you picture someone permanently in a straitjacket, I mean, it's pretty challenging to operate permanently in a straitjacket with your arms kind of wrapped up, <laughs> right? And and I think that, that for me, it's, it's not, it's never been like a singular major moment that, has been a barrier. It's been consistently feeling as though I'm in a straitjacket. And what that can do to creativity, you know, I've always performed, um, I've always been a high performer in my organisations, which is why I've progressed in the way I have. But I wonder also what the possibilities could have been if I was in great environments where I could have felt as though I could have brought my whole self to work um, and be, you know, outside of, the straight jacket, you know, I just wonder. And I say that because now I run this business and this business is one of the few things I do. There's a real sense of freedom to dream and create, um, which is a really liberating feeling. And it's reminded me how creative I actually am. All right. That's, that's perfect. All right. Let's um, move track a little bit. So more talk about yourself and um, less about the career and the business. What are you grateful for and why? Yeah, I mean, so gratitude is something that's really important to me. And uh, actually, every morning when I wake up, the first thing I do is I say thank you. Um, At points in my life, I've always written gratitude diaries as well. But I am genuinely grateful for everything. And I mean from... The fact that I um, am able-bodied and able to exercise. So I love exercising. I love doing um, like boot camp and fitness classes. I'm really grateful for my health. I'm really grateful for a really supportive family um, and friends. I'm really grateful for the privilege that I've been afforded to be able to walk away from a job during a pandemic and set up my own business, which now also contributes and pays me. Um I'm really thankful and grateful for the freedom of choice that I've decided to do this and have because not everyone is afforded that privilege. 
the list could go on and on and on. I'm genuinely, and I think about it all the time. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful for my parents and the types of parents that they were to me. Really selfless and fun. My dad is hilarious. Um, and I've kind of taken that from him. He's a typical dad that thinks he's funny and he's really not. But I've found that I do the same. Like, I'll say something and I'll laugh and no one else is laughing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful for so much. And um, I feel really fortunate, um, even in terms of, like, the, the childhood I had, the career I've had to date, and now where I'm about to take um, my kind of entrepreneurial journey. And that's including being inclusive hospitality and beyond. All right, perfect. What has life taught you recently? What life has taught me is that your instincts are never wrong. So I am very, I'm a spiritual person. I really believe in energies. And I've often found in points in my life where my instinct has told me something. And I've second guessed my instinct, that's either about a situation or an individual. And my instinct is never wrong. I think that, that there's, there's a, I'm not particularly religious, but I really believe that there's like a higher vibration and that the universe makes no mistakes and that there's this thing that's unexplainable, but we can feel and that's when we meet someone for the first time and there's just a connection there or whether we're in a situation and we're forced to make a decision and our gut leads us in a certain direction. And I sometimes think and look and reflect and think maybe when I was working full time, you know, working for an organisation, maybe I didn't have the freedom to feel because I feel as though over the past two years, I've really dialed into that in a way that I never have before. And so, yeah, intuition, instinct, it's so important. It's like a guiding compass and um, it, it, it really has like proved really beneficial for me to be fair over the past two and a half years and decisions I've made. All right, that's great. If you could live one day of your life all over again, what day would that be and why? I, I don't have a day, to be honest, that I could relive again. Um and that is not necessarily because I haven't, you know, I've had many special moments, memories. So I love traveling. You know, I've traveled um, like extensively, love traveling. I've had some really special and amazing moments with my friends, my family. But to live it again, it's, there's nothing that comes to me because irrespective of decisions I've made throughout my life, I just, I don't live with regrets and I try not to focus on the past. I try and stay as present as possible and sometimes lean into the future. And with that kind of frame of mind, it's probably steered me away from even having the thought of, you know, what if or, yeah, it's something I struggle to answer, really. No, nah, that's that's all good. Um, you've, all, you've answered it in your own way as well, anyway. Like, it's the importance of staying present and not necessarily, you know, being fixated on the past. I think that's uh, something that a lot of people, myself included, struggle the hell of a lot with. And uh, yeah, I try and be as present as I can. But you know, when you're, you're thinking, you're always thinking, always thinking, and it's, it's so difficult. 
it, it really is. And don't get me wrong, I, I am now that way inclined, but it hasn't happened automatically. It's happened with time. It's happened with reading. Um, so a lot of the books that I often read are centred in psychology or self-development. Um, and The Power of Now is a book in particular that really uh, resonated with me and I learned a lot from. That said, absolutely, you know, I think we all have a tendency to look back. But I am or have been quite good at checking myself when I do and trying to remain present. So it's an ongoing thing, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not just Zen permanently in the now, but it's something I, I, I think for the majority of the time through practice, I spend most of my time there, I'd say. All right, great. And as we prepare to wrap up, final question, what does the next chapter in your own story look like? Mm. So the next chapter in my own story looks like um, being able to bring together all of the things that I have learned over the past 20 years from a technical perspective about food and drink and bringing that together with my love for everything that is us. So um, what I mean by that is, you know, black food, black drink, black culture, um, and putting that in a pot and producing something really special and magnificent. And, and that definitely is, is, is in the future. That sounds very tasty. <laughs> I don't even know how else to explain it. Or in a pot, that's like a nice, nice food analogy, which is very, yeah, makes sense for you and your background. All right. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate you coming on. Really love hearing from you. Lots of good, good advice. Lovely conversation. Great story. Everything. Thank you for coming onto the podcast, Lorraine. Um, before we wrap up, if you've got, um, have you got any last words you might want to say? And also if people want to keep up to date with yourself or be, be inclusive hospitality, how can they do so? Uh, yeah, sure. We're on all social media. Um, so we're on LinkedIn, Instagram, um, Twitter and Facebook. Um, we also have a website, which is www.bihospitality.co.uk. In terms of any final words, um, I would just say whatever you are doing in life from a career perspective, try and carve out a way to align yourself with something you love. And um, it's not always apparent and obvious and easy, but I just, I really firmly believe that life's too short to spend 40 to 70 hours of your week doing something that you're not passionate about and that you don't love. That's it, I love that. I love that ending actually, it makes so much sense. So thank you very much for that excellent bit of advice. Thank you very much for an amazing conversation and everything that you shared with us today uh, but that's that for now people if you're listening to the podcast on youtube whatever podcasting platform you're listening to this on please do subscribe and leave us a rating it really really does help us in amplifying these inspirational stories of these people we get on the podcast but that's that for now people thank you for coming to the podcast once again lorraine this is 1000 voices that was lorraine copes the founder of be inclusive hospitality and for now we're out